Eileen, there was something extra happening yeah. there. Nice to have the children here, though, and of course they'll come back in a few moments' time. Not too quick, because we're going to turn to God's Word for ourselves in these moments now. If you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, we're going to be in the middle of the Bible, which is where you find the Psalms, and we're going to be particularly looking at Psalms 42 and 43. It won't come up on the screen because I'm going to be referring to it a little bit later on, but I will read one or two verses now so you get the general feel of what is being said here. So Psalm 42, and it begins from verse 1. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, where is your God? And then verse 11, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And then Psalm 43 and verse 5, and you're going to get an echo of what we've just heard. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. If you came here this morning and you were happy, that's good to know. But we all know that come 11 o'clock, that kind of happiness will give way to a different kind of reflection as we join our nation for a couple of minutes in silence. Our mood will swing from any elation that we have to a lower level, rightly so, because we'll get somber. And we'll get serious as we think about, as we would say, people who gave their today so that we could have a tomorrow, that we could have a future, and that we could have a hope. And it's right that we have that mood swing at this time. Our war leader was Winston Churchill, again, as you would know, and you're no doubt familiar with his familiar speech that he gave over the radio to motivate people towards hope. We will fight them on the beaches. We will fight them in the schools. We will never, never, never give up. What is not so well known is the fact that when he completed that speech and the radio microphone was turned off, he slumped down on the decks before him. And then he looked up and he looked through the glass that kept him away from the producers and the directors of the program. And he said, and what are we going to fight them with? Beer bottles? Because we really didn't have the equipment to stand alone, as indeed we were being encouraged to do so. And his mood went from seeking to motivate people right down. And if you've been to his house and you've looked at his letters and his writings, as I have done, then you will see that he talks about his black dog, the swing of moods that he would often have, and at times when he would go down, and it would take him a long time to come up to a level of hope all over again. 
But when you come to think about it, moods, we all have them. The up ones and the down ones, the happy ones and the sad ones, the elated ones and the deflated times, as the old folk song says, sometimes I'm up, sometimes I'm down. Oh, yes, Lord. But the problem is, how do you get up when you're down? And how do you make sure that you don't go then too far up so that you will then go too far down because that sometimes is the problem with our mood swings. Taking a small dose of poison daily we know would not be healthy for us. But do we realize that when we allow our moods to take control of us, they can be like a slow dripping of sulfuric acid, something like that, into the stomach linings that we have, not healthy for us. So the key question is, how do we handle them? And Psalm 42 and 43 belong together. And here is a man who is owning up to the fact a sense of gloom and hopelessness has overwhelmed him and is not sure how he can get out of that situation. But he does. And we're going to see how that happens. Now, I need to say immediately here, to clear the decks, I am not talking about clinical depression. If somebody gets into that state, wise words and medication are no doubt helpful. I'll pray for them. But they need something more than that as a gift from God to be able to help them through that situation. Just the other day, early morning, our telephone went and we had a call from a lady we have come to know over the last few years who needed to be rushed to the emergency ward because she was in excruciating pain. And her daughter couldn't be there just at that moment. So we got into the car and we took her there and we said, as Pauline was going to stay with her until her daughter could arrive, we'll pray for you. But we realized that she needed more than prayer. She needed gifting in other ways to support her. If somebody breaks their leg, then pray for them, but they need more than that, don't they? And if somebody is broken within their mind, at least it will give them time to have help in other ways too. I am not talking about a clinical depression. But the gospel does not promise freedom from pain now emotionally. For somebody who is a believer, it just promises us that nothing is going to separate us ultimately from his love in eternity. So we're going to look at this whole matter on this special day. And we're going to examine here the state that this man was in. Because I think many of us will say, you know, it's like looking in a mirror. Because I understand that from my own experience. And then we're going to look at the source of that state. Why he got himself into that situation. And once again, it might be like looking in a mirror and thinking, that's why my mood has gone low and seems to want to stay there. It's just like it was for this psalmist. 
But then most important, we're going to look at the strategy that he adopted in order to bring himself out of that so that he could come to a level of balance and equilibrium. Because my hope is that we will so grasp that, we will be able to go from this place knowing how to apply that into our own lives too. So look at the state he is in. As the deer pants for streams of water, deer don't wait until they're dying of thirst in order to go looking for a water hole. So this means the usual riverbed is dry. And the psalmist says, I'm like that deer and I'm thirsting for God. It's not that he doesn't believe in God. It is that he doesn't sense God. And there is a difference, is there not? When can I go and meet with God? Repeatedly he says that through these Psalms. His low mood is because of dryness. Now this may happen because we're guilty of something. And we cannot expect the Holy Spirit to give us a reassurance and reaffirmation if we are deliberately quenching or grieving his activity and the relationship that we can have with God through the Spirit. A young man, when I was pastoring a church in Salford and Manchester, and it was the very early days of my pastorate there, he made contact with me because he had no assurance whatsoever of his salvation. He was a member of the church. I chatted to him. Whatever I said, I couldn't help him to find assurance. He would ring me sometimes in the middle of the night. I was stunned by how patient I could be, you know, when you're woken up like that. And I think it was because he was in a shocking state. And I still couldn't help him until I came to understand this. He was robbing his employer. No wonder he couldn't have a spiritual reassurance. He didn't need reassurance. He needed to repent and put that matter right. Now, that's not happening here. This psalmist is in a drought situation and he has done nothing wrong. Unfortunately, we're critical of the predicament when it happens to other people. Because it's hard to admit, therefore, that this is actually happening. Because a friend might say, why don't you buck up and pull yourself together? I mean, you're a believer, aren't you? Just rebuke the devil. Just pray. Just read God's word. Just bring yourself out of that situation, which makes it difficult for someone to acknowledge this, because there are times for us when two plus two equals five. And no clever cliches seem to be able to get us out of that situation. He doesn't say, I don't believe in God. He says, I don't feel him. Now, what produces? There are three sources that produce this problem for this man. And one is isolation. You'll notice that in the fourth verse. I used to go 
with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive front, and then dropping down to the middle of verse 6. I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. For whatever reason, this man is away from fellow believers. He is isolated. He is no longer free to be able to lead and be involved in worship there in the temple. Individual prayer and Bible study is good, but we need one another. Never underestimate the value of togetherness. In the movie Gladiator, Maximus is a general and he is descended to becoming a slave. And with a group of other slaves, these men are thrown into the Colosseum in Rome. And out come the charioteers and they turn one to the other and they say, we're dead. It's all over for us. And Maximus says, if we stay together, we survive. And Christianity is a community project. So we need to plan time to be with one another. To bear one another's burdens. You've got to have a burden for somebody able to be able to bear it together with you, right? But we've therefore got to be close enough to other people to help them help us in that situation. People say, I can be a good Christian without going to church. This isn't common sense. How do we know we can be a good Christian without going to church? Unless we actually go. But as a result of being isolated, we become dry. If we only want our personal fix with God, so we're in and out of the church doors as fast as we can make it, it will lead to problems. The church family is forever changing. We will not be building relationships of openness and sincerity before one another. And it may be that we will find ourselves like this man in our equivalent of a miser and saying, I don't know how I got there. Work at togetherness. Isolation may cause the problem for us, but I'll tell you another one. It's insults. In verse 3, he feels the taunts of people. Where is your God? In verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Clearly, disillusioning circumstances have set in. We don't ask, where is your God? Unless we're missing him. And sometimes the criticism and even the self-criticism that comes, that I'm missing it with God, that can be so terribly exhausting and cause our moods to go down. We commit to Christ and the worst things happen and we end up asking the question, why? One answer is, imagine what it would be like if you were not committed. But that's not how we think about it. So we get knocked over and we stay down. Because we just don't know how to get up. We're too tired in that situation. Isolation can do it. 
Insults can do it, but so can what I call an interplay. And I use that word because we're more than spiritual. We're a body. We have a mind. And there is an interplay between them. And if things are not going right emotionally for us, we know that that can drain us in our body. Verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night. He's not eating properly. Do you see that? And that's going to impact him. We mustn't ignore our body. That will aggravate problems for us. Great Welsh Bible teacher was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And in one of his books on Psalm 73, actually, he deals with the subject of depression. And of course, as some of you will know, he had been quite a physician before he became a preacher and a Bible teacher. And in that chapter, he talks about the interplay between the body, the mind, and the spirit. And how that on certain occasions, some people have thought him to be quite unspiritual because they have presented themselves to him and he has said, what you need is to go and take a holiday. But he's recognized that there were problems with them physically, which were draining them emotionally. And they were thinking they'd got a spiritual problem. Amy Carmichael understood this, a great and godly missionary to India from Northern Ireland. And on one occasion, a young man wrote to her how exhausting it was and how low he was getting at the calling and demands on his time there in India and what could he do about it. And she wrote back, read Punch magazine. And some of you will remember that, and I can tell that you do. A satirical magazine. Here is a very godly, Christ-like woman, but she understood there was a need here to get a light and shade and a balance within his life. He needed to laugh and to smile a whole lot more. Religious people tend to reduce everything to the spiritual and moral. Secular people to the biochemical. Oh, you're getting low, all you need is a pill. But do you see, there is a complexity about our makeup and an interplay between the various facets of our makeup. So all of this raises a very key question. What is the strategy for dryness? A little girl had a tantrum in the supermarket. And her mother heard her screaming out, You can't tell me how to feel. And quietly but firmly, the mother looked the seven-year-old in the eye and said, No, I can't tell you how to feel, but I can tell you how to behave. An underlying assumption is we can't command our feelings. God does expect us to train our feelings. God commands obedience from our heart. He tells us what to fear and what not to be afraid of. He tells us what to delight in and what not to delight in. He tells us 
It's actually okay to be angry as long as you're angry and you don't sin. So what choices do we need to make? What do we need to do to help us when we get in that low mood? Four things help release our soul, refocus our hopes, remember God's goodness, and recite to ourselves. First, release our soul. In verse 4, I pour out my soul. Do you know what he's doing? Don't miss this. I don't feel God when I pray or read the scriptures, but I am still going to pray. And I am still going to read the word of God. We say, I don't feel anything. Fine, then talk to God about that. If nothing else, tell God we're missing him. Job is an example of this. Have you noticed that man, the trauma that he went through? And how that his friends really didn't understand the terrible suffering that he was experiencing in the loss of all of his children, the loss of his... He was a billionaire. And he lost all of his business in a moment. And he lost his health and couldn't sleep at night. And his wife he lost the relationship with her. Why don't you curse God and die? Actually, I've got quite a sympathy for his wife. I haven't for his other friends, but I have for his wife. Because she is watching her husband suffering so badly. She wants him out of it. And sometimes that's how you can feel when you're seeing somebody going through something so bad. I just don't, I wish it was me rather than them. But he gets vitriolic in the direction of God. And what does God say at the end? Well done, Job. For getting like that. Albert Camus, as a philosopher and outright hater of God as an atheist, you read his stuff and you see how vitriolic he gets, but there are parallels with Job. So what's the difference? Job tells God, he pours out his heart on how he feels, and he never stops believing in God as he does so. If we are not getting anything by going to God, I tell you this, you'll not get anything by staying away. Talk to the absent God about his absence. Be more disciplined than we were before. And second, refocus our hopes. A refrain runs three times through these psalms. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Think about this. Some questions are not after information. Saying to a child, why did you do that stupid thing? You're not looking for information, are you? Oh, why did I do that stupid thing? Because I got stupid parents. <laughs> not the wisest of approaches. Now, the psalmist is after information. Why did I get so low? Sin has not brought him low, but he still checks out what it may be. And then he says to himself, put your hope in God. What makes us who we are is not just our temperament, but where we are placing our hope. Imagine two people doing the same mundane job. 
And yet one of them does it in a positive way. And why? Because it's the boss's son. And he knows he's starting at the bottom so he gets an understanding of what happens in the factory but he's not going to be there for very long. His hope is he is the next CEO. And that changes everything. If we make our hope health, wealth, family, career or no bad thing happening to us then we could be in for one almighty fall because there's nothing particularly solid about making our hope in those. We have to focus on what the Apostle Peter called a living hope. This is going to sound morbid and I genuinely don't mean it that way but you get to the 40th wedding anniversary and there's a big celebration of family and friends and the photos will come out and there's a measure of sadness because there are people missing now who were once there and are not now we can't handle life without a living hope that the best is yet to be how do we put our hope in God? The answer is in one place, by getting into the Bible and letting the Bible get into us and to give us that different perspective. That's what Paul wrote to a whole church in Rome. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And do you remember that occasion? on a road between Jerusalem and a place that the Arabs still call to this day Emmaus, and how a couple of people were sensing how disappointed and disillusioned they were as they walked down that road at sunset. And they were joined by somebody who spoke with them. They're looking where they're going. They're watching their feet so they don't trip over. And he inquires of them, don't you know, they say, we had hoped, we had believed that this person, Jesus, was the Messiah. And he took every part of the Old Testament. What a Bible study. He gave a grand sweep through it as they made that journey. And he showed them how, look, this had to happen. It wasn't an accident. It was an incident in God's ongoing purposes. That he had to die, but he would be resurrected. You will have a living hope as you trust in him. And they recognized him by inviting him into the home. How? Because they invited him to break bread. Kind of grace that they would say. And they looked at his hands. And they saw the marks on his hands. They recognized him in the breaking of bread. Now their whole mood has swung up as they make that difficult and dangerous journey uphill all the way back seven or eight miles to where the disciples are. We know that he's alive, so do we. We've seen him. He's appeared to us. They have a living hope through their knowledge at first of God's word. When I studied theology for my first year, I stayed in a room which was named after Henry Martin. 
I thought I'd better get to know something about this man as this name I'm living in for a year is on the door every time I go into my study bedroom. And I discovered that he had been a student at Cambridge University. He'd become a young missionary to Asia back in the 19th century. And because of God's calling upon him, he would never see his fiancée again. He died at 31. On the ship, he battled with self-pity. The kind of self-pity that comes about And again, you might recognize this because of rejection and a sense of failure. So you spiral into a self-pity, another word for depression in the case of Henry Martin. He had had promises made to him and the promises had not been kept by the mission society. A veteran missionary disliked him intensely. It can happen. And it was a real struggle for him. But... He kept on keeping on. And he translated the New Testament into three languages. And he fought discouragement with the truth of God's word. The better we grasp the teaching of God's word, the more we're going to have hope. You'll know the saying, no pain, no gain. Do you know this one? No hope, no cope. And we keep our hope by using the weapon of Scripture. And we must preach hope to ourselves. And the psalmist releases his soul, pouring it out to God. He refocuses his hope to include God in his perspective. And then he remembers God's goodness. Verse 6. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you. He deliberately thinks about God and his goodness. We will hear voices saying, God is not good. Despair is a place we don't want to go because we may not come back. Do you know what accelerated his despair? Surprise. Everything was going great and bang. Suddenly it's not going great for him. C.S. Lewis said that expectations are everything. And he illustrated it from a room. You have been led to believe it's going to be like a honeymoon suite. And when you get there, you find it's a dump. However, if you have been led to believe it's going to be like a prison cell and it looked like that room described as a honeymoon suite, then you will be saying, not as bad as I thought it was going to be. It's all to do with whether you can roll with the blow, whether we're going to be surprised by what is happening. And Christians lose their peace because they don't expect attacks like this to come upon them but they are inevitable in this fallen world most depression comes upon us as believers because we're sad or upset something has happened a sense of failure a sense of rejection and I didn't sign up for this think about it as a Christian we've got more enemies than anybody else on planet earth think about that As a non-Christian, we only had one enemy. And do you know who that enemy was? 
God. <laughs> because we were alienated from him and we needed to be reconciled to and can be through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ shed as a substitute for us. So that we're no longer alienated but can come near to him and know him coming near to us. But that only means we're going to have other enemies. Expect attacks from the world, from principalities and powers in heavenly places and the need to put on the whole armour of God. Expect problems with a sinful nature. We're going to have those struggles. One of the best ways in which we can answer that is by remembering the goodness, ultimately, of our God. And the way to do that is to sing about it. And that comes out in the eighth verse. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me. A prayer to my God. The God of my life. As a professional musician he says, I will praise you with the harp, O God. My God. He sings at night to himself. Singing is a way of remembering the goodness of God and actually bringing something of that into our own senses and into our own emotional well-being as we sing. I loved a little book written by a man in heaven now. He wrote it when he was in his 80s. His name is Paul Bilheimer. The book is Destined for the Throne. And in it, he tells a story about praise and the difference it may make because God, as he said from the Psalms, inhabits the praises of his people. Here's a man who is conducting an evangelistic tent crusade in a remote farming community in Canada. With the permission of the farmer, he would go into a farm field just before he was to preach and then step up to preach. On the last day, he realized this was going to be important, and he went earlier, not realizing the farmer's prized but ferocious bull was in that field until it was too late, and the bull was thundering towards him. You never know what you're going to do, I guess, until you're in a situation like that. And he thought, I can't make it to the gate. I'm going to die. But if I'm going to die, I'm going to die well. So he closed his eyes because he didn't like looking at what was coming towards him anyway. And he lifted up his hands towards heaven and he said, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And then he opened his eyes and he saw the bull heading to the extreme end of that field away from him. Now, you can make of that whatever you like, but I will go along with this author. The devil was trying to stop that mission and therefore stop the missioner. And it was praise that made the huge difference in that situation and removed the smell of hell like a great deodorant that praise can be in such a situation. Never get over God's goodness and singing about it. And then you're ready for one final thing, to recite to ourself. So remember God's goodness. Sing out his praises like that, but always go on to notice the psalmist isn't talking to God or us, but talking to himself. 
Coming to this meeting, we have been talking to ourselves. All the way here. Who's speaking today before our pastor comes? Oh, it's that Derek Stringer. I do hope he's going to be better than last time. <laughs> but we're saying something and talking to ourselves all the time. Listen to the psalmist self-talk. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Do we know how to talk to ourselves? What we say is often the deciding factor of how we live. The quality of our lives will be hinged by the conversations, the inner dialogue that we have. Watch out for victim phrases. You start the morning and it's not good morning, it's oh, it's bad morning. That kind of approach that we have. An American youth camp during its sing and praise time in the evening sessions, just before the epilogue, and they would go to their tents, they had a little refrain and they would be exuberant about it like only maybe American youth can be. And they would recite, I am God's child. Now, if I was in America, I would say, why don't you join me in the refrain? I realize that I'm not, we're not like them, are we? But maybe you'll humor me. And as I say what they would say, you'll just join me in the refrain. We'll see how this goes, shall we? I may be young, I may be old, I may be hot, I may be cold, but I am God's child. I may be educated, I may be unlettered, I may be free, I may be fettered, but I am God's child. I may be black, I may be brown, I may be white, I may be a clown, but I am God's child. I may be rich, I may be poor, I may wear a brace, I may even snore, but I am God's child. I may be short, I may be tall, I may have hair, I may be bald, but I am God's child. I may live in a house, I may live in a trailer, I may be successful, I may be a failure, but I am God's child. I am a sinner, but I'm also a saint, and a nobody I certainly ain't, because I am God's child. Now this is not just buck up and pull yourself together. But like the psalmist, we learn to preach to ourselves. And notice the psalmist doesn't say, I want to praise God, because that would be untrue. He says, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. And one person was really dying of thirst. But what a difference it made, because he put his hope in God and knew that he would yet praise him. He was forsaken. He was taunted. But Jesus Christ didn't experience sin, but lost God. But he was taking the penalty for us. Our security is not in how we feel. It's always in the gospel. Cling hold of the truth. My low time is not eternal. We can decide to change our moods. We can make a decision to change them. Fair enough. We're going to get serious in a matter of a few moments. Rightly so. But if we will follow through on this strategy, what a difference it's going to make.
Would you bow your head with me in prayer? And just remember the Lord has a gift. It's peace of mind and heart. And he says, this peace I give isn't fragile like the world gives. So let your heart not be troubled. Don't let it be afraid. Just remember that all I am and all that I have is yours. If you'll just take it with all my love, Father.